right. Good afternoon to those joining us um, from the Stanford campus or elsewhere in California or on the west coast of the U.S. Good evening to those of us joining us from further east. Um, and good morning to those waking up in Taipei, Taiwan, or elsewhere in Asia. I am Karas Templeman. I am the program manager of the project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Uh, and it is my pleasure today uh, to introduce our speaker, Alex Wong of the Hudson Institute. Um, I want to note today uh, that this is the last of our regular speaker series events uh, for the 2020-2021 academic year. Uh, I want to thank all of our audience for bearing with us as we, we dealt with the, um, the COVID-induced work from home and broadcast from home environment. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed uh, enjoyed watching these from the, the comfort of your own home as, as much as we have enjoyed putting them on. Um, this has allowed us to reach a larger audience and uh, we're grateful for the opportunity to speak with you uh, in this format. I also want to note that uh, the WHA, the World Health Assembly uh, annual meeting is taking place this week and uh, Taiwan is once again not uh, a a participant in that annual meeting, as our speaker today will also talk about a bit. Um, Taiwan, until 2016, had observer status at that meeting. And so um, Taiwan has uh, been excluded in part because of pressure from Beijing uh, as part of a, a concerted political campaign to uh, squeeze off Taiwan's international space. Uh, and that's particularly disheartening and relevant to today's conversation because Taiwan is also in the midst of a COVID outbreak, uh, the worst uh, there so far. Uh, they recorded uh, just north of 400 cases today. Uh, and so while Taiwan has managed the COVID outbreak, the global pandemic much better than just about any other country in the world, um, they're also facing a serious situation. And so uh, we, uh, I want to say a, a particular jiao to our our, uh, our followers and our audience in Taiwan, and we hope that uh, you're able to get the pandemic under control there very soon. Uh, and uh, I have uh, strong confidence that you will. Uh, so, without further ado, let me introduce our speaker today. Uh, it's my privilege to uh, to give you the background on Alex Wong who is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Uh, his research spans the US national security policy and foreign affairs uh, with a particular focus on US strategy in the Indo-Pacific region and the future of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, but he is also a commissioner on the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission, uh, which is where I first uh, met and interacted with Alex. Um, that is a commission appointed by Congress to examine the national security implications of the trade and economic relationship with China. Uh, and he's uh, serving a one-year term there. Um, uh, and that commission has met several times with him uh, as part of it. Um, I'd encourage you to check out their, uh, the deliberations of that commission as well. Uh, they are online at the US-China Economic uh, Commission website. Um, 
Mr. Wong, uh, prior to serving on that commission, uh, was in the executive branch as a deputy special representative for North Korea and the deputy assistant secretary for North Korea at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, in that position, he was the number two negotiator in denuclearization talks with North Korea, and he guided the U.S.-led international pressure campaign against North Korea during the Trump administration. Uh, previous to that, he was uh, the leader of the State Department's efforts to implement the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regional and Security Affairs in the State Department's East Asia Bureau. And in that role, he made a, a fairly high profile visit to Taiwan in March of 2018, um, which uh, may be how some of our audience is, is familiar with him. Uh, prior to that, he also worked over on Capitol Hill. So he has broad experience in Washington. Uh, he was the foreign policy advisor and deputy counsel, general counsel to Senator Tom Cotton uh, and the foreign and legal policy director for the Romney and Ryan uh, 2012 presidential campaign. Uh, he graduated summa cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania and he received his JD with high honors from Harvard Law uh, where he was the managing editor of the Harvard Law Review and an editor of the Harvard International Law Journal. And uh, the title of his talk today is Watch This Space, Beijing's Push to Close Off Taiwan's International Space and the U.S. Response. Uh, without further ado, Alex, uh, the floor is yours. Wonderful. Cars, thank you. And my thanks to you and your colleagues at the Hoover Institution for inviting me to share some thoughts today. As you said, I, I hang my hat at the Hudson Institute these days, and something I've noticed is how productive, um, how much productive collaboration there is between us here uh, in DC at Hudson uh, and you and, and your colleagues there at Hoover on the West Coast. So I'm glad to be part of that continued collaboration. The spectrum of topics concerning US policy toward Taiwan is broad and multifaceted, but the topic we're discussing this evening, bolstering Taiwan's international space is current and urgent. As you mentioned, Karis, in the backdrop of our conversation, the World Health Assembly is convening this week. This is the occasion for representatives from across the world to collect under the, under the auspices of the World Health Organization to address the world's most pressing global health issues, COVID-19 chief among them, and set an agenda for action. But for the fifth year in a row, the WHA has excluded Taiwan from being an observer at this meeting. Now, this was not unexpected, but the decision of the WHO at the behest of Beijing puts into sharp relief the intensity of Beijing's broader effort to narrow Taiwan's international space, as well as the cost of that effort to the global community. Taiwan's significance on the global health stage is worth restating. First, Taiwan has a population of 24 million people, on par with that of Australia or all of the Nordic countries combined. This large population is not isolated. The people on Taiwan travel and host travelers frequently. Second, Taiwan has a world-class health system and a sophisticated public health apparatus that even with the recent spike in COVID-19 cases, executed what may have been the best response to the pandemic that kept cases and deaths low while permitting the maintenance of economic resiliency. And last, Taiwan is a positive contributor to the global public health effort. Through both bilateral and multilateral means, the Taiwan authorities prioritize health assistance and technical training abroad. This includes steady aid to Taiwan's diplomatic partners, most of which are aid recipient countries 
with only limited health infrastructure. From a global health perspective, it makes no sense that Taiwan would be excluded from the WHA or from lower level meetings of the WHO where much of the technical work is done. Taiwan's exclusion, of course, harms the people on Taiwan as their interests are not being fully represented in the WHA. But of course, and of course, it harms the rest of the world that would benefit from Taiwan's expertise, its contributions, and coordination regarding health issues that we all understand recognize no borders. But I think it's important to note that Taiwan's exclusion from the WHA <clears throat> also harms the people in China. Years ago, during the time that China acquiesced to Taiwan's participation in the WHA, Chinese public health officials and cross-strait officials would openly acknowledge that confidence-building measures with Taiwan in the public health arena made a lot of sense. Given the travel and economic exchange between Taiwan and the mainland, there was a shared threat of infectious diseases. But importantly, given the people-to-people -people connections and common language between the mainland and Taiwan, there was also an enhanced capability and possibility to coordinate on mitigating and eliminating the disease threat. For five years now, that threat has been allowed to fester. And it's worth asking what better steps might have been taken to combat and contain COVID-19 had that coordination continued and had it grown. Now I've spent some time laying out the entire case of Taiwan and the WHA because it's emblematic of a broader Chinese effort in multilateral fora and the negative consequences globally of that effort. Over a period of years, China has deliberately gained increasing influence in technical intergovernmental organizations. That a country would seek greater influence at UN organizations and other fora is not in itself objectionable, but it has become clear that China has used its enhanced influence in significant part to pursue a range of narrow political aims. And it's done this at the expense of the technical missions of these organizations, namely to foster coordination and provision of international public goods. And perhaps the chief political aim that China has pursued in these fora is the isolation of Taiwan. A chief question we need to ask is why would China do this? What are Beijing's objectives and intentions when it seeks to exclude Taiwan from international fora and at other times to encourage the diplomatic partners of Taiwan to switch their official recognition to Beijing? Of course, a portion of this answer is China's sensitivity to any international institution or foreign actor coming even near the question of China's claim of sovereignty over Taiwan. But that's not the entire explanation. For much of the past 40 years, there's been a discernible, if tenuous line China has drawn where it would not protest Taiwan's inclusion in international fora where observer or non-state status was available. The basic idea was that if the participation of Taiwan did not touch on the question of sovereignty, China would stand down. This is the basis for Taiwan's particip participation in APEC and the WTO after all where Taiwan participates in a functional observer status. But China's objections in the case of the WHA for the past five years and the intensity of its protestations in other contexts do not turn on any recognition by an international body of Taiwan as an independent state. They're turning in fact upon other motivations. First, 
China is increasingly using its ability to pressure Taiwan's international space as a cudgel against Taiwan's democracy, and in particular, President Tsai Ing-wen. China's WHA protest, as well as its campaign to poach some of Taiwan's diplomatic partners, began five years ago with the election of President Tsai. Beijing explicitly linked the WHA decision in 2017 to its row with President Tsai over the status of the 1992 consensus. While the world has become perhaps acculturated to China's casual linkage of the question of Taiwan's sovereignty to the issue of WHA participation, it was in fact quite a bold and disturbing development. It was an open statement by China that it was using its position in a technical world body, one that should be free from politics to achieve China's narrow political ends in a coercive manner. In this frame, the harm to the public health outcomes of the people on Taiwan and the rest of the international community, community wasn't an, an, an ancillary consequence of China's effort to exclude Taiwan. It appeared to be the point. The second motivation behind China's current push to isolate Taiwan is related to China's domestic party politics. There's been much talk in recent years in both the media and in diplomatic circles of so-called wolf warrior diplomacy. Diplomats who have been on the other end of this style of diplomacy are familiar with its hallmarks. Nationalistic lectures and sometimes insults delivered in a brusque tone that seldom make any nod to any notion of dialogue or diplomatic exchange of ideas. The truth is that these are not in fact diplomatic dialogues because when wolf warriors are talking, their audience isn't the foreign diplomat across the table. The audience is the domestic audience back at home in China, and in particular, the Chinese Communist Party authorities. With each passing year, the domestic party politics of China increases its demands on China's diplomats, on China's overall foreign policy, and I believe increasingly on its cross-strait policy. Looking to the statements of Xi Jinping and other party leaders, it's clear that the issue of Taiwan is taking on a larger and more urgent profile in the party's planning. Whereas leaders prior to Xi Jinping laid out more restrained policies regarding Taiwan, they were that, that were at best uh, or at base status quo positions. Xi Jinping has been different. He's expressed impatience with the Taiwan issue and it is a desire not to pass the question of Taiwan from quote, generation to generation. While China is not a democracy, it is not bereft of popular and party politics. Xi's statements at the same time both fuel and reflect a nascent political desire among the Chinese population and the Communist Party members to force the issue across the strait. You could term this a negative political feedback loop, one to which China's wolf warrior diplomats are responding. And we're seeing part of that response in China's increasing pressure on Taiwan's international space. The third motivation behind the current push to isolate Taiwan is the most worrying to me. And it's where I think US interests are most at stake. In modern military studies, there is the concept of shaping the battle space. This is work done before the introduction of kinetic operations to frame the strategic parameters of the entire battle space, 
to best position your forces and place the adversary at a disadvantage. This goes beyond traditional battlefield factors to more abstract but equally vital political and economic factors. Judging from China's considerable increases in defense spending over the past decade, coupled with an evaluation of the types of air, sea lift, long range fires and information capabilities that it's investing in, I think it's clear that China is preparing its military for a possible Taiwan contingency. At the same time, I look at China's increasing efforts to isolate, Ta isolate Taiwan in the same light. China is preparing the political battle space to enhance its chances at success in a coerced unification uh, operation if it so chooses. China's success in an invasion scenario depends not just on military hardware, but also on the intensity of the international political opposition it would face. An isolated Taiwan is an easier target for a Chinese strategic planner. <clears throat> it's not so easy for a Chinese planner if Taiwan has strong ties to international institutions and in both official and unofficial partnerships around the world. Invading a Taiwan that is strongly wedded to the international space would put China at greater risk of pulling in other actors into the conflict. Those actors may not play a direct military role, but they would respond with measures that would close off China's own international space in the political and economic arenas. Now, so far in my remarks, I've laid out what I see as China's multifaceted motivations in trying to close off Taiwan's international space. And in reviewing them, I think there's a clear trend. Beijing's approach to diplomatic matters, technical cooperation matters, political matters, and military matters is not cleanly compartmentalized among those policy spheres. In fact, in a number of instances, Beijing enunciates clear linkages between those spheres. Whether it's regarding Taiwan or other issues, Beijing's policymaking and its statecraft can be seen as unitary across traditional policy categories. U.S. policymakers, in turn, should remind themselves to think about the U.S. approach to cross-strait issues, not in a compartmentalized fashion, but as a spectrum of issues that are interconnected. The issue of bolstering Taiwan's international space, as well as the issues of U.S.-Taiwan trade, investment, military sales, and people-to-people -people ties, directly connect in a unified fashion to the core U.S. interest in, in cross-strait stability and the prevention of conflict and coercion. Now, this is not a new idea. It's in fact been the underlying concept of U.S. involvement in the Taiwan Strait for the past half century. And it's a concept reflected in the suite of documents that form the basis of the U.S. One China policy, the Joint Communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act, and the Six Assurances. Those statements take a comprehensive view of U.S.-Taiwan relations. In them, there is no purely political. There is no purely economic. There is no purely security. All aspects of U.S.-Taiwan relations are connected to the overall interest in stability across the strait. Now, that's the basic conceptual framework of U.S.-Taiwan policy. But I'd like to add another concept to that framework, 
It's a concept we pursued during the Trump administration and one I believe many in the current Biden administration wish to pursue as well. It's the idea that paradoxically, the most effective way to maintain stability across the strait is for the United States not to look at Taiwan as a narrow cross-strait issue to be managed. Instead, the United States should, should widen the aperture. It should look at the example set by Taiwan as an affirmative and positive opportunity, opportunity to be seized and promoted throughout the Indo-Pacific. Taiwan has a, a vibrant democratic system. It has made steady, the steady journey from an agrarian economy to one that is capital intensive, knowledge-based and cutting edge. It has enviable positions in terms of higher education, human rights and social solidarity. Leveraging those qualities to embed Taiwan in the free and open fabric of the Indo-Pacific would go a long way in balancing against Beijing's coercive drive and deterring aggression from across the strait. Beijing for sure would like to cut the threads of that fabric around Taiwan. In turn, the United States and our partners need to reinforce those threads, not just for the interests of the people on Taiwan, although those are important, it's for the interest, the national interest of the United States across the Indo-Pacific region. Now, this is a conceptual framework that I would propose for US strategy. But what are the specific policies that would animate that framework? There are three tonight that, that I'd like to highlight, and they pertain, pertain to three distinct areas of Taiwan's international space. First, multilateral, multilateral institutions. Second, China's periodic attempts to poach Taiwan's official diplomatic partners. And third, Taiwan's position in the global trading system. First, in order to protect technical multilateral institutions from Chinese attempts to infuse them with narrow political aims, whether they're focused on Taiwan or not, it's important for the United States to institutionalize within its civil service and its diplomatic corps expertise in multilateral affairs. China has long invested in a concerted effort to, to whip votes in favor of its countrymen or favored candidates for leadership positions at the UN and UN related bodies, the WHO among them. This years long effort has borne political fruit for Beijing, including in the isolation of Taiwan within these bodies. Understanding and then shaping the internal electoral politics of these multilateral bodies is not an intuitive matter. In fact, it's less akin to traditional diplomacy than it is to the peculiar nature of parliamentary politics involving individual personalities, horse trading among unrelated issues, and flexible and subtle coalition building among repeat players involved in a series of votes over time. In light of this, it's imperative that we adequately equip our career diplomats, the tools and parliamentary tradecraft necessary to successfully win elections for the best candidates. Now, our, our career diplomats spend normally two to three years at a time working at multilateral bodies before moving to another more traditional diplomatic post. This structural feature of our foreign service puts them at a disadvantage in learning and executing within these unique political environments. Now, in the Trump administration, there was an important decision to name a special envoy for UN integrity who was charged with leading the US whip operations uh, in, in leadership elections, among other duties. 
but the efforts of the special envoys should be buttressed by further institutionalization of parliamentary skills among our career diplomats. The efforts of our diplomats should be buttressed by, by more civil servants who have lo a longer timeline of service at these institutions. Both foreign and civil servants should receive better training in the procedural peculiarities of multilateral bodies. And they should be given more discretion at lower levels to develop, to develop, husband, and dispense chits in the furtherance of beneficial deal-making. And an effort should be made to make the multilateral institution career track for diplomats more attractive and more prestigious so that it attracts the best among them. The second policy I would propose relates to counteracting Ch China's periodic attempts to poach Taiwan's official diplomatic partners. In doing this, the United States should take a broad approach that focuses on strengthening Taiwan's international relationships across the board, whether they be official or unofficial. Let me explain more what I, what I mean by that. Whether a relationship is official or unofficial should of course matter to Taipei and the United States, and it does matter. But the official unofficial distinction as purely a legal distinction should matter less to Taipei and the United States in terms of vital interests than it does to Beijing. The Communist Party's narrative, its historical justification, its very legitimacy is threatened by the official relations that Taiwan possesses. That's why the Communist Party invests so much in poaching, uh, sorry, invests the poaching of Taiwan's diplomatic partners with such symbolic power. But for the shared Taiwan and US interests in deterring conflict and coercion and protecting Taiwan's democracy and in energizing the free and open fabric of the region with Taiwan's example, the best metrics of our success are the number and substantive quality of Taiwan's relationships regardless of the official or unofficial nomenclature. So in a scenario where China is attempting to poach a, di a Taiwan diplomatic partner, the US should be, of course, should make its views clear with that partner's government. It should, of course, make its views clear with China. And consistently, the US should continue to support joint engagement together with Taiwan, with all of its 15 diplomatic partners to maintain the value and logic of those relationships. But those efforts should be situated in a wider effort to bolster Taiwan's unofficial relationships, particularly with partners that are larger, wield more strategic weight, and exhibit innate resilience to Chinese pressure. Let's make no mistake, an official relationship with, say, the Vatican matters. But in many ways, U.S. support for unofficial relationships with Southeast Asian nation states, uh, Southeast Asian states, or with Japan, or with Australia that are broadened and deepened and that are animated by shared values matters even more and yields even greater strategic dividends. My third and last proposal is related to my second proposal, an open avenue for the United States to directly buttress Taiwan's international space is in the negotiation of a free trade agreement. As a strategic matter, if the US and Taiwan conclude a free trade agreement, it will further stabilize Taiwan's resiliency to coercion. And it'll also set an example for similar agreements to be concluded around the region with Taiwan. It may also create momentum for Taiwan's accession to other regional trade agreements. Now I emphasize that a free trade agreement in the abstract makes sense for the United States as a strategic matter. But I'm the first to tell you that a free trade agreement in practice 
was first make sense for the United States as an economic matter. If it doesn't, the trade agreement will not have popular support. And as a result, it will tend to fray the strategic logic of the agreement over time rather than strengthen it. Finding that economic sweet spot, one that can then give rise to strategic benefits in the long term, is the job of trade negotiators. And I'm eager to see what steps the new US trade representative takes in this regard. Now, I've spoken a long time, um, and I want to be sure to, to leave room for, for some spirited questions and discussion. Uh, but I want to say thanks again to you, Karis, and to the Hoover Institution for the opportunity to speak tonight. And uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Okay, great. Thank you for that uh, wonderful presentation, Alex. You put a lot on the table. Um, I was remiss earlier in my introduction in noting uh, we are accepting questions from the audience. Uh, if you have a question, please do enter it. You'll notice a little Q&A box down at the bottom of your screen. You can just write in your question there. Uh, and I don't know if we'll have time for all the questions, but I'll attempt to read through those and generate. Um, it, uh, generate a prompt for our speaker to respond to. Um, the first question I wanted to, to pose to you, Alex, is about uh, how practical it is for the U.S. to push back against China's efforts to constrict Taiwan's international space, and in particular, whether we ourselves might look a little bit hypocritical when we do that, in the fact, in the sense that we do not recognize Taiwan as a uh, an independent country. We have our own one China policy. And in, within that framework, um, we uh, maintain robust unofficial relations, but we do not have an official partnership. And so when we criticize other countries for flipping from Taipei to Beijing, do we not look a little hypocritical then? Uh, and does that then not undermine some of our own uh, moral authority in pushing back against uh, countries that would make the switch. Right. I mean, the short answer is no. Uh, you know, I've heard this argument before in, in some discussion, whether it's internally in the government or just in, in, in policy circles. Uh, you know, I think it's a pretty facile objection, you know, to, to say, well, you know, the United States doesn't recognize Taiwan, so how can you, you know, push back on this? You know, I think anyone with any familiarity and uh, with, with the cross-strait issues who understands the history of the past half century of, of, of how we've come to the place we are uh, with uh, the Taiwan authorities where they are and with Beijing and where we are with our US one China policy, understands that the US, United States has played a, a very strong role in the Taiwan Strait, played a very strong role in the understanding we have between Beijing, Taipei and the United States in maintaining the status quo, maintaining stability. And that requires um, uh, an acknowledgement of our position that there shouldn't be any coercion and that involves political, economic and military coercion. So when we ask states not to bend to China's coercion, where we take measures, as I've, I've explained, to buttress Taiwan's international space, that's not in tension with our one China policy. And in fact, it is and has been for decades, the US one China policy. So again, I, you know, I, I, I hear that, but again, I think that's, that reflects kind of facile argumentation, lack of familiarity with the history. Uh, and in, in my conversations with, 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 with foreign interlocutors, uh, perhaps some have raised it, but it does not really withstand the, the, the light of scrutiny. Okay, great. Um, I was struck by your, one of your recommendations that, um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, policy recommendations for the US. Um, 
One is to promote uh, greater expertise and understanding of how multilateral institutions work. And um, uh, let me, yeah, I, I hope you don't find this too trolly, uh, but uh, let me suggest, uh, so the Trump administration actually declared that they would pull out of the WHO rather than try to continue to engage with what they saw as a flawed organization. And so more broadly, let me take that example and, and blow it up a little bit. It seems to me there's two broad strategies here for the US when they're dealing with an international organization that is, uh, yeah, in our view, um, has been captured by Chinese uh, influence or is under Chinese influence. One is simply to, uh, to quit and go home or to, to pull out and try to create some kind of parallel or alternative institution. Um, the other though, is to re-engage and to kind of redouble our efforts to pu push back against that influence. And uh, given that you worked in an administration that was uh, pretty skeptical of international organizations, broadly speaking, and, and their, uh, the, their susceptibility to, uh, to, to uh, Chinese influence and the restraints or constraints they put on U.S. influence um, versus the recommendation you have here. I, I wonder how you come down on this issue. Is it, is it institution by institution or do you think um, just as a blanket statement, the U.S. should redouble our efforts to be involved in these multilateral organizations? So yeah, thanks for the question. Um, just as a little background, I, I was actually nominated to be uh, uh, to take up an ambassadorial post at the UN in in, in New York. Uh, didn't quite get confirmed because I ran out of time. Although I made it out of uh, Senate, it's all my personal you know, situation. Was not confirmed, but I, I take a strong interest uh, in U.S. participation in the UN and other and uh, other multilateral fora. So let me just talk a little bit about my proposal. Um, you know, if, if you spent some time in the Foreign Service, working with the Foreign Service, you'll know that there are, there are some um, there, there are some postings that are more coveted than others. There are some career tracks that are more coveted than, coveted than others. Multilateral institutions uh, has not traditionally been one that, that people desire to go into. So to the extent people participate and work in it, they do it for a short time. They don't want to make it their career. Perhaps it doesn't attract the best and the brightest all the time. Um, and in the, in the activity within multilateral institutions, particularly the election, the leadership elections that have been a, a lot of the focus of China and what's the focus of the Trump administration and a lot of our efforts to counteract their, their efforts to elect their, their, their favorite candidates. Um, that's, you know, more foreign to a foreign service officer than being in Beijing or Hanoi or, 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 or wherever. Um, so there needs to be an effort to compensate for that, uh, to give them the right tools so they can be as effective as they can be in that setting. And, and, and those uh, foreign service officers, you know, with, with prior parliamentary legislative experience, I think it worked very well uh, in, in those types of bodies. Now, going back to your question regarding, um, you know, U.S. Uh, withdrawal from certain bodies, I have no problem with that as an option where we, we find that an institution is not living up to its mission, where an institution has been so um, put at odds with the UN Charter or whatever the charter may be, and I'm talking, uh, if you want specifically about the UN Human Rights Council, for instance, that, that should be an option for us to withdraw. Because if we are fully committed as the number one funder of UN operations, no matter which direction these organizations are going, no, how, no matter how corrupt they are, no matter how um, disfigured 
their 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 activities are. Uh, that's not an incentive for them to reform. So that should be a tool. But I think that's a different question and a different issue, or at least one that that is skew or, or separate from the issue of engaging forthrightly in the internal electoral politics of these bodies, whether it's at ICAO or WIPO or, or WHO, where we are, are ensuring that the leadership that gets elected, and it doesn't necessarily have to be US leadership, uh, that those that leadership uh, is abiding by the UN charter and is not seeking the, the narrow political aims of a body like the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and, and that's just the electoral leadership level. There's also the, the issue of, 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 of making sure that the international civil servants at multiple levels who are very influential, who do a lot of the, the, uh, the, the, the work and, and where the rubber hits the road, that U.S. citizens, but also citizens from, from, from countries, again, that are, that are true international civil servants are getting those jobs. And there's not an over-representation from China or other countries where uh, their designs may not be in line with the UN Charter and the overall interests of, of, of the international community. Okay, great. Um, we're getting uh, a bunch of questions in now and several of them have to do with Taiwan's access to vaccines. Uh, I imagine you had some, uh, some involvement with this uh, during your time at state in thinking about COVAX and other ways that vaccines are distributed internationally. Uh, Taiwan is uh, part of COVAX and has received um, a few thousand vaccines. I believe they're up to about 500,000 now in total uh, through that network. Uh, but other channels that they pursued to get vaccines uh, have not been as effective. Uh, and in particular, there's a big controversy right now in Taiwan about the possibility of getting vaccines from Chinese suppliers. Uh, Taiwan has a blanket ban on pharmaceutical products from mainland China, uh, that includes vaccines. Uh, and so there's some political pressure on Tsai Ing-wen to lift that ban. Um, she has so far declined to do that, um, but she has pursued uh, a vaccine uh, contract with BioNTech, which is one of the manufacturers of Pfizer, which has a contract with um, Sun in China to distribute that vaccine domestically in China. Uh, the dispute, as I understand it, is about whether Taiwan is included under that contract and whether Sun then has exclusive right to distribute to Taiwan as well as to Hong Kong and Macau and mainland China. Um, and uh, so I wondered, uh, that's a long way of setting up this question, but I wondered if you had some thoughts about the current uh, controversy over Taiwan's uh, uh, inability to sign a contract directly with BioNTech or other companies distributing a vaccine and their the, the delays in getting those vaccines. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen the same reports and I've, I've followed it and I've, I've been following you know, the, the vaccine um, distribution, but but also just political ramifications, not just for Taiwan, but for, for countries throughout the world. You know, it's, it's, it's maybe ironic is not the right word, but, but unfortunate and, and notable that some of the countries that had the best overall response to the pandemic last year, whether it be South Korea uh, or, or Taiwan, uh, that they're experiencing delays in, in receiving the vaccines now. So this is not a problem unique to Taiwan. Um, and 
you know, it, it's 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 going to take, uh, and I think many countries are going to do some after action reports on on how this occurred. You know, you look at a case like Israel, where, um, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu, I think, made the very early decision to not just pay more for to secure early uh, supplies of, I think it's the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, mm. but he also promised to share with those countries uh, public health data. Uh, which is very robust in, 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 in granular in Israel to aid them in their own research on the effectiveness of those vaccines. So this is a very complicated issue on how the vaccine prioritization happened, how the commercial uh, agreements have been met, as you've outlined, given the, I think it's the licensing agreement that, that Fosun has uh, as a producer. And, you know, the reports I've seen that indicate, and it could just I'm not sure if it's it's right that there was a specific uh, mention of Taiwan in 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 their contract, uh, but I also saw that the Taiwan Health Minister indicated that you know they he would like to see some paperwork or some 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 proof of uh, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but he'd like to see something from Fosun. So there might be a, a way forward here. I'm not sure, um, you know. But from the U.S. perspective, you know, I know President Biden has talked about making. I think it's 20 million or even more vaccine doses available for distribution to uh, to countries around the world. Now, in that process, if it's anything like the process that we underwent in the Trump administration to plan out our assistance and on COVID, uh, there are a lot of factors you have to to take into account. There, you know, need assistance, um, uh, uh, assurance that the distribution will be equitable uh, within each country's. Uh, but uh, you know, one of the factors we, we will have to look at is, is need. But that doesn't mean that that no vaccines could go uh, to to Taiwan. If you see in the recent summit that occurred between President Moon of South Korea and President Biden, they came out with an agreement to vaccinate uh, uh, South Korean um, uh, uh, servicemen and women uh, as part of our alliance there. And you know, a lot of people said it, it would have probably been, you know, an e you know, an easy no for Biden to say, well, you're a developed country that has a great health system. We, we, we wouldn't want to do that. But they found a way to, to provide some assistance. And I think, you know, as as the, the I know there are talks going ongoing uh, with with Taiwan authorities in the U.S. about this. I think there's some way we, we can hopefully uh, provide appropriate levels of vaccine, uh, even if it's not you know enough to vaccinate the entire population, but as goodwill gesture. You know, particularly given last year, the way that Taiwan uh, helped us in our time of need, as well as other partners around the world with PPE um, and other assistance on, on COVID. Um, you know, I think that's uh, I think that's good. I think it'd be good to help out our partners and be reciprocal in that fashion. Uh, so I'm following it, but I'd like to hear more about this 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 dispute with Fosun. But hopefully, I understand there are other contracts with with other vaccine makers, and that those come online sooner rather than later for Taiwan. Um, can I just do a quick follow-up on that? And that is, um, there have been several stories about Taiwan's formal diplomatic relationship with Paraguay, which is the only country in South America that still has uh, formal relations with Taiwan. Uh, there's some pressure on Paraguay domestically, on their leadership uh, from domestic uh, opponents to switch diplomatic relations to Beijing mostly to get access to uh, China-produced vaccines. Uh, and so I wonder if this is another case where the U.S. potentially could bump Paraguay up the priority list if we do have a surplus of vaccine to, to supply Paraguay 
in exchange for them not making the switch? Or is that uh, is that a bridge too far? Are we are we getting too much into kind of vaccine uh, vaccine pressure and diplomacy? Right. Well, look, I'd, I'd be curious to know if, if China, if Beijing has in fact made that offer. Yeah. Uh, or if this is just you know political domestic domestic political discussion in Paraguay. I've, I've been following the issue that closely. But look, I mean, to the extent that this is a discussion in Paraguay, I think it's worth a discussion uh, between our representative there, our ambassador there, uh, meaning the U.S. ambassador there, uh, and and their and their government. You know, the the power of the United States simply by making our opinion known, simply by making a request, and simply by explaining and situating an issue in the overall relationship we have we have with the country. That's actually quite persuasive. Uh, I'm not sure if that conversation has happened. Uh, if it has come up, I'm sure I know what the, uh, our ambassador would say. But that's where the policy should begin. Have the conversation. See where the government actually stands. Um, but speculating about trying to play a game of one-upping Beijing to, to bid for diplomatic recognition is not, it's not where you want the relationship to be. You want the, the overall relationship to be grounded again uh, you know, in longstanding uh, uh, trust, uh, but also share values in, in, in wider connections between the countries and not just between the governments and not on a narrow um, temporary situation like this vaccine diplomacy. So that, that's what I would say about that. But I, I don't know the particulars of the situation. I don't know what conversations are ongoing, but that's where I would start the conversation. So next, uh, I have a question from uh, Larry Diamond, who I believe is on the line here with us. Um, can I turn it over to Larry to ask that directly? Okay, I have two questions that are a little interrelated. First of all, Alex, that was a very good answer to the last question, by the way, and thank you for your work and your presentation. Uh, so in terms of the competition that China is ramping up to lead these agencies, you mentioned, I think, before that it now leads in the UN, the FAO, NIDO, ITU, and ICAO. But they're also, uh, you know, it looks like they're, they want to take over UNESCO, and then there'll be a contest to lead those other four. And, you know, what were you seeing as you prepared to uh, uh, take up one of our UN ambassadorships in terms of a strategy for mobilizing uh, voting power uh, within the UN to uh, blunt this uh, growing ambition of China to kind of hijack uh, the international system toward its uh, hegemonic ambitions. And that's kind of more at the elite level of diplomacy. But um, what are we doing and maybe not taking full advantage in, in perhaps doing at the level of public diplomacy in a lot of these countries that are going to determine the shape of the international system uh, to reach out to publics that have rising concerns about Chinese neocolonialism, to get them to pressure their governments uh, for a different type of stance. You know, there are a lot of activities that we're taking uh, abroad in our relationships, uh, you know, in, in strategically important regions where I think China has also strategic interests. So they're not all related. To, uh, to multilateral institution elections. So when you're talking about, uh, you know, let's just talk about the economic frame um, and, and infrastructure. Uh, you know, China has a certain deal that they offer. The US has a different deal. 
and the, our partners in the West have a different deal. The private sector has a different deal. And having that conversation, not about telling countries who to work with or who not to work with, but talking to them about standards and uh, long-term benefit to them, and then offering them options is something that's happening. And that doesn't relate directly back to the multilateral electoral uh, uh, issue. Um, but that, I give that as an example, and you can. there are other examples in the security space and the human rights space and the assistance space where we're making our case. Uh, and I, I, I say that because it's easy to, to point to, a, to, a, to what we see in the media as a, a Chinese effort or a, a, a loud uh, um, uh, announcement of a Chinese cooperative agreement or MOU or something like that and, and assume that we're not doing anything. We're doing a lot. Uh, we can get more out of it publicity-wise, and we, we're working on that. Uh, I, I still talk like I'm in the government when I say we, but but it's there. Uh, but as far as the multilateral institutions, I will tell you, despite you know very sophisticated um, uh, efforts and you know priority placed on the core business of certain international bodies, namely the Security Council, to you know to advance our interests, to advance the resolution, to advance activities and projects and programs, or in peacekeeping, for instance. You know, for a long time, there just wasn't a priority placed on the elections. And it was not something that that we saw in a strategic frame. And it's not just us, it was our partners as well. And we were playing catch up with the Chinese on that. And it took uh, us seeing the strategic peril, uh, pitfalls of, of Chinese leadership uh, or, or, or at least, or domination uh, of, of these bodies to realize that. So, you know, I mentioned that in the, in, the, in the Trump administration, working with Congress, and this really, I think, was a congressional idea, was to appoint a, a, a special envoy for UN integrity that would lead these efforts. Now, I know people are always a little nervous about naming special envoys. Uh, I share that nervousness, even though I worked in a special envoy office. But I think this is one of those, those, those areas where we did need someone to concentrate, to develop the internal capabilities to compete in those elections. Uh, but also awaken our allies and partners to the same type of priority that they needed to place on that in the same way that we placed on discussions and debates over resolutions in the Security Council. So, uh, and that's not something you can create overnight. I mean, you, you have to you know, both, you know, you're trying to build the institutional capability, but then you also have an election that you have to deal with, you know, right, you know, an immediate uh, 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 urgency to build coalitions and make deals. Uh, and and say and when I say deals, you know, countries, and you talk to them about electing people, you can of course and you should make the best case you can on the merits. And usually, there's very little dispute, at least from what I saw, very little dispute on who was the most meritorious candidate. The votes, however, uh, in in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, that could tip the result depended on whether that country could get a vote for their candidate and some other body down the line or on some other topic. And this is the horse trading that's involved. Now that may seem or strike folks as unseemly, but this is legislation. You see it in Congress here, you see it in parliaments across the world, uh, and it's a part of the process. And that is, again, not traditional diplomacy, but something that we have to acculturate our, our career diplomats to. It's something that we have to be clear-eyed on. And it's something, again, that in building our coalitions, we have to awaken our partners to uh, to engage in this game. Thanks, Alex. Um, 
So I've got a bunch of questions here and I don't think I'm gonna have time to get to all of them. So I apologize to the audience if I don't get to your question, but I'll try to um, summarize a couple here in one, one shot for you. Um, and that is, uh, there's been a lot of statements in, in recent months that uh, about multilateral concern about the Taiwan issue. So there was just uh, in, in the last 48 hours, I think the EU and I think it was Japan actually issued a joint statement of concern and that mentions Taiwan. And to my eyes, this is a real sea change in the way every other country has approached the Taiwan issue. Um, in the past, they just didn't want to touch it. They saw that as a, as a real kind of third rail in any relationship they had with China. And now it's moved to the center of uh, more and more countries' relationships with China. And so I, I wanted to ask, is that also your impression? And are, is that a good development? And is that something that the US can encourage and support or should encourage and support? Right. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a trend. And it's it's been occurring more and more uh, in recent months, and, and and you know, I think you see it in the joint statements that are coming out. Uh, you know, I, I think Taiwan is something that is a priority um, that the Biden team, I think, admirably has placed in in the joint statements they've had uh, and and tried to pursue in in their meetings. You know, I think you also see it in even at lower levels. You know, for instance, for a long time, the U.S. has had this program with Taiwan. And you're probably familiar with it, the the Global Cooperation Training Framework, right. and third countries uh, beyond us and, and Japan, which is an official uh, kind of co-host of it, countries beyond that framework have been informally hosting uh, trainings, trying to be involved. So, you know, I think, you know, going back to my remarks, whether they're official or unofficial relationships, deepening and broadening relationships that Taiwan has uh, across the board with countries is good for stability. It's good for deterrence because expanding uh, Taiwan's international space is, is an expansion of deterrence, in my view. They're connected. The politics and the diplomacy here are connected to the security. Now, I think the statements are a good thing uh, where, where multilateral institutions and countries highlight um, the significance of stability across the street. But I do think the more sustainable approach that these countries should take is not to focus on potential conflict or potential instability or, or, or particularly the, the term cross-strait. It's to focus on finding those areas of cooperation with Taiwan that are beneficial to them and that are not about Beijing. Uh, you know, Taiwan, if I'm a country, uh, you know, let's say a developed country in, in Europe, I look at Taiwan and I think there's a possibility here for some sort of partnership on on, on semiconductors, on advanced materials, on they need energy, on en energy importation. The, the Taiwan uh, authorities have laid out some economic plans and economic priorities. A lot of it focused in Southeast Asia, but some focused on uh, uh, you know, financial uh, asset management. All areas of cooperation that can be productive to a third country and that are not about China. Uh, that's what I would encourage uh, if, if they're looking to, to, to be involved in this space more. But to answer your question in short, the trend I think is discernible. Uh, the trend I think is good, but uh, I also am worried that it's reflective of greater fear of a possible conflict, which is not good. Um, so related to that, um, I, 
I just want to say you're preaching to the choir here. We've long, uh, this program is uh, dedicated to the idea that Taiwan should be considered on its own merits rather than as a problem or an issue in the relationship with China uh, for, for better or worse. You know, there are also uh, uh, weak points to Taiwan's uh, political system and its, its economy, but the Taiwan itself is a success story and, and should be considered as such in, in its relationships with all of other parts of the world. Um, but related to the, the concern about um, uh, a rising military threat to Taiwan, uh, there's been increasing chatter in US foreign policy circles that Xi Jinping uh, might be willing to give the order within the next few years to actually make a military move against Taiwan. Uh, and I wondered, uh, there's uh, certainly some difference of opinion even within our own institution about how likely that is. Um, and I wanted to get your sense of uh, whether you think that is a real threat, whether the, uh, the kind of sense of alarm, if not, I don't want to say panic, but certainly a sense of urgency in trying to bolster Taiwan's defenses is justified today, or whether you think uh, the non-military aspects of this relationship are potentially being overshadowed by this focus on the shifting military balance in the Western Pacific? So sure, I'll answer that question. You know, when you are judging a threat, you know, as a policymaker, mm -hmm. you you look at two factors. Um, you look at a the absolute uh, if 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 a contingency occurred, if a war occurred, a conflict occurred, you would look at the magnitude of the harm to U.S. interests in the international system, and you would look and you also look at again, the, the chances, the probabilities that that conflict would occur. So, uh, you know, even if the probabilities are small, even if the probabilities are disputed of a Taiwan um, uh, uh, contingency, I think that the ramifications and the impact um, should Taiwan fall in a coerced unification, the impact on US interests in the region would be catastrophic. Uh, so regardless of, of where you put the percentage chance, whether it's 2% or 10 or 25 in the next 5, 10, 15 years, whatever it happens to be, multiplying that by the magnitude still makes it a really uh, a, a, a considerable uh, and I think one of the top security priorities that we have around the world and not just in the region. In turn, the United States military and the government should prepare for that contingency. Uh, both because if we do find ourselves and we choose to enter into that contingency, we should be able to win it. But in doing that preparation, that also pushes down the probability because Xi Jinping will see that and it will deter him. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's that hard of a question uh, of, of what we should be doing. Uh, we should be preparing for that. I mean, what's the saying? I can't, they always misattribute it to like, you know, Bismarck or whoever, but, you know, the best way to, uh, to preserve the peace is prepare for war, but there's right. truth to that. So uh, whether it's this this situation or others, we have to do that. But I think here, judging the magnitude, and regardless of where you place the probability and in what time frame, I think that it points to you know a pretty obvious um, policy course for the U.S. from a defense standpoint. So uh, related to that, what do you think the non-defense elements of the relationship? Uh, if anything, can do to help bolster our ability to deter uh, coerced unification or other threats against Taiwan? Does uh, signing a free trade agreement, uh, for instance, have any 
uh, security benefit for Taiwan? Uh, does uh, Taiwan's participation in the global cooperation and training framework have any uh, security benefit for Taiwan? Or are these just good things to do on their own? Well, I think, I think you know, the, the Taiwan is understandably concerned about the economic balance that Taiwan has with the mainland. So to the extent that the diversification of Taiwan's supply chains, of its uh, capital flows, of, of, of its uh, market, uh, you know, consumer markets, uh, the diversification of that, you know, with what is still uh, uh, in some in some measures the largest economy in the world in us is a good thing. And if you expand that out to Southeast Asia, which he's trying to do concertedly and with other partners around the world, um, that that bolsters Taiwan against the coercive uh, policy of Beijing, whether you know whether it's 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 military or not. That again is is not in line with U.S. interests. So I do think it has an effect. Um, but the, as I said in my remarks, um, if the U.S. can conclude that agreement or, or unagreement with with Taiwan, one again that's in our economic interest, we're not simply doing this out of out of out of charity. Uh, that opens the way to similar agreements with 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 uh, between Taiwan uh, and, and and other countries in the region. And again, diversifying, bolstering, and embedding Taiwan uh, in what I like to call the free and open fabric of the region. All right. Um, so we've got one minute left, and I just want to uh, throw this last question at you. Um, we've talked a lot about U.S. policy and what we can do to try to bolster Taiwan's security and its economic prosperity. What can Taiwan do to help their own case with the U.S. and with the other uh, other countries in the region that favor closer relations with Taiwan? And with regard to the U.S., I mean, I'm not sure if this is exactly yet said your 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 question, but look, I, I think the chief thing they can do is to focus more on their own defense, to focus more on the resiliency of their population in case of a contingency. You know, we can't be in a situation where the United States takes the defense of Taiwan or the possibility of defending Taiwan in a contingency more than the Taiwan uh, people do. So that's what I would say. And that's not simply a matter of defense spending and doctrine, although I think it is largely that. There is a cultural and political and wider discussion that has to happen, and maybe it's happening now uh, in Taiwan on this. If you look at, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in, in South Korea. I've spent a lot of time in Israel, um, in places that are under siege, uh, in places where there's the possibility of waking up and being involved in a, a fight for your life and the life of where you live, um, that's inculcated from a very young age. And there are responsibilities and duties uh, of those people that they take on and, and each and every one of them. You know, I, I think more of that, seeing more of that in Taiwan uh, is necessary um, if this is to be a, a, a sustainable arrangement that we have that maintains the peace across the street. Well said. Um, thank you, Alex, for that tour de force. Um, we're really glad to have you join us today and uh, really appreciate your speaking on uh, this important, during this important week. Uh, again, we wish the folks in Taiwan well. Jiayou. Uh, we hope you get through this hard period. Um, and 
Uh, we hope uh, to have some of you join us in person starting this fall uh, once we'll shift back to in-person events. Uh, this is our last event, as I noted, of the speaker series for the Project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region at the Hoover Institution. Uh, do stay tuned. We will have uh, an announcement about our fall lineup in the not too distant future, and I hope you'll be able to join us for many of those events as well. Uh, I'm Karas Templeman, and uh, this has been the uh, Project on Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific Speaker Series. We've been speaking with Alex Wong. Thanks, everyone, and good morning, good afternoon, or good night, wherever you may be. Mm -hmm.